0: something we been curious about this broadcast
1: t-minus 10 9 8 7 and we have main engine start 5 4 3 2 1 and liftoff this is
2: tgp nominal commence episode now all systems remain nominal nominal nominal
3: nominal, nominal.
0: Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. Tonight's episode is going to be a bit of a mixing pot of flavours and I also have been let out of the studio for a field trip, but there's more about that later in the show. Normally at this point I will be turning up the fader and introducing my regular co-host John Berger. Unfortunately John won't be able to join us tonight due to family commitments. However, I won't be on my own this evening, or should I say this afternoon, because joining me all the way from California is fellow podcaster and co-founder of International Podcast Day, Dave Lee. How are you doing, Dave?
1: I'm doing great, Mark. Uh, Thanks for having me on the podcast. Always exciting. It's been a while since I joined you. Uh, Excited to talk about, like you said, some space, some development over the last couple months, and uh, to talk a little bit International Podcast Day. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it.
0: Uh, We can talk a little bit about your podcast as well. because that's where you started this whole journey really was through your podcasting.
1: Yeah, so my podcast is called The Waves of Tech and actually my father and I do the podcast and we've been doing it since uh, 2007. So we're 11 years into our podcasting journey here and uh, Steve and I, we have a sort of tech variety, tech grab bag podcast show and so week after week you're going to get a variety of topics and headlines and news within the tech industry uh, that talk about how technology is influencing how it's impacting your life so whether it's from you know conversations about how technology is influencing education aerospace healthcare Uh, we get into a lot of the business acquisitions social media influence and so week after week we come with just fresh topics and, and just sort sure of share the stories, things that you need to know about and real tangible technological facts that you can take away and learn uh, about what's going on in the industry. So yeah, it's, it's been great. We're 417 episodes in at this point, 11 years in, and of course that spawned off and we went into International Podcast Day. Uh, but yeah, the podcast is fun, it's great. It's exciting to record because it's something new and something fresh week after week.
0: That's one good thing about technology and uh, that side of things is because it's forever changing.
1: That's one reason we named it the Waves of Tech because technology does go in waves and ebbs and flows between some stale portions but also like if we're talking about SpaceX and a few things we're going to talk about tonight is, it, it's always changing. There's always something fresh, there's always something new and there's always something exciting to talk about within the tech, technology space.
0: Now, I can't remember when it was now, you um, covered a STEM festival, didn't you?
1: I think it was last December and then I actually went to one in this March as well and that was great. Yeah, My, my wife is actually a lecturer at a local university here and so she had a cohort of students that went to a, a STEAM and STEM symposium and I was able to go down there, uh, record Order and microphone in hand, talk to those that are developing new initiatives and innovations within the educational space, whether it's from creating virtual reality settings for students, whether that's creating mobile platforms, whether that's utilizing smart speakers within the classroom, you know, wh- whether that's using small maker spaces to create and introduce students into uh, science, technology, and mathematics. It was really cool to kind of get hands-on and-, and talk to the innovators and also talk to some of the students on the side about what's going on in the educational space. And and we know that these conferences are designed to place students in a capacity where they want to consider science, technology, engineering, and math in the future and sort of change their trajectory as far as a a career choice and as far as a choice in education. Always really fun to go to those conferences.
0: Uh, We've been kind of following suit, actually, because, um, and this is the reason why I brought that up, because back in 2015, Dean we got involved with a, a science fair called the Big Bang Fair uh, it's and it's quite a big affair it's uh, a, a conference centre called the NEC the National Exhibition Centre in Birmingham it is a big thing I mean all the big boys when it comes to um, different organisations and, and companies that uh, are trying to entice youngsters into working for them actually uh, they're also the space agencies and the uh, and the military that kind of stuff but they've also got these little regional versions of it and uh, back in my hometown they organised one they have done for the last two or three years and it's called Big Bang in Bucks because it's in Buckinghamshire I was invited down to that this year and I've got some interviews and things that I did with some of the people involved and that's going to be coming out later this year. But um, yeah, you're, you're right about that. It is really fascinating to see the reaction with some of these kids you can tell when you've got someone hooked. And at that point, you think, you know, are we looking at someone here that could be the next generation of scientists or astronaut or whatever it's really fantastic to see
1: yeah it's pretty amazing because i mean you you can you can read about it you can research you can record a podcast about what's going on in the educational space but when you're in person and you're seeing how these students are interacting with their lecturers their professors and also interacting with these companies that are developing these products for them that's really when you when you get to see as you mentioned like is this the next great mind that i'm watching orchestrate around you you know this this coding or or this design of this makerspace and you, you just never know if who, who you're talking to who, who you're sitting next to but as long as they're they're being exposed to that they're enjoying it kind of gives them that pride that, that they're creating something from scratch and and that's what the students are looking for that's what the the educators are looking to pass along and it, it's great to be a part of those events it
0: certainly is now the main reason that I invited you on the show tonight was in international podcast day and that's coming around very quickly and the garbage pod family have been a supporter of the event since its conception back in 2014 and that's when you came on we got to know each other and, and uh, talk about what was going on with this new concept which back then was national podcast day Exactly. Um, what's changed for International Podcast Day over the years, how's it uh, evolved?
1: It's been an interesting journey, definitely an interesting evolution. As you mentioned, 2014 was our first year, and we did a, a small little six-hour online celebration events here, just strictly within the United States. And you know, it was is maybe it was a bit naive on our part, but we we knew that there were international podcasts. Right, the UK was developing in the time, Australia was was starting to to grow as well, Brazil was starting to kind of push forward as well so what we did is we we started just with a small little six-hour event here in the states and then after our first event we quickly rebranded to international podcast day realizing that there is a there's there's a host of other podcast and podcast listeners out there from from all over the world right and so year after year mark we have developed a 30 plus hour schedule where we invite podcasters from a various countries so far we've had we've streamed over 100 plus hours of live video content and that's that represents about 50 different countries and and different podcasters from those countries so we've had the likes of of india poland uh trinidad uh argentina new zealand china like we've you you could italy france you could probably name a country off the top of your head we have probably had a podcaster uh represented and it's The cool part is, yeah, we put together a 30-hour live event where you can come, you can learn how to improve your craft as a podcaster, you can learn about the growing podcasting scenes, you know, like in the United Arab Emirates and what's happening in the Philippines. And so it really exposes the podcast community to a lot more that's going on because we do tend to get in our own little bubble right within the podcasting space, focused Mm -hmm. on what we do, not really branching out. And so that's one thing we've really tried to do with International Podcast Day, is just highlight some of the podcasters and and growth that's taking place. But one of the awesome things that we encourage everybody to do is, yeah, we have our event that we plan online, but it's about celebrating the day and celebrating podcast in whatever form or fashion you want as a podcaster. And so uh, over on our website, we have a great list of different social events and different meetups that are going on around the country there's there's podcast meetups and in workshops and festivals going on from Canada to India to to Dubai uh, to Poland. Um, uh, I think I mentioned Canada, but there's a, a, a few here in the states as well. And they're doing all that around, roughly around September 30th, which is International Podcast Day. So people have really embraced the movements of, of podcast and are finding very unique ways to celebrate the day. And of course, we'd love for you to come join in and to our live stream and learn a lot about what's going on. But also, if, if you have your own unique way of celebrating, get out there, meet up with your listeners, meet up with your, your podcast buddies. It's it's just a great event. It's There's national donut day there's national beer day there's national friendship day mm-hmm. we have our own day now in that september 30th and that that's a reason for us to get out and, and share the power of podcasts because they are powerful uh, they're very educational and it and it's great to get out there and celebrate things that we love
0: i think it's important to have something like that because being a podcaster sometimes can be a bit of a lonely existence
1: <laughs> absolutely <laughs> because
0: yeah. you do you do the podcast uh, you know some people on their own or you do it as a, a you have someone with you that you can bounce off of. But you don't always get the reaction from people until maybe a few weeks later. I mean, I've had people contact me from a, about a podcast that I did a couple of years ago. And I'm trying to remember back what I actually did. And you know, I'm having to listen it's to the true. podcast again to find out what I was doing. And when you get these kind of events like international podcast day uh, and, and as soon as you go onto the social media and you put that hashtag, you put the hashtag international podcast day in and then you get some of the reactions come back with you in minutes from different people and you're talking with like minded people online and it's fantastic.
1: It's really a great event and that's that's ultimately what we want to do is create this open dialogue right between podcasters and their listeners, between those that don't listen to podcasts and being encouraged from those that want to share, you know, and that's one thing we push, you know, yeah, we, we do a lot for the podcaster and how to improve the podcasting industry. But there's also a, a large segment. It's about going out there and rating and reviewing your favorite podcast, reaching out to your favorite podcasters and your show hosts, you know, and in connecting sending that email that you've been meaning to send for a while, but haven't, this is a good day to go out and do that and say, Hey, you know, international podcast day was day. I just want to thank you for X, Y, Z. And that's the component of it, right? Because you said producing shows week after week can be lonely, right? And wh- whether you have a, a co-host or not, but you're only getting a small percentage of your listeners and your fans that are responding. So this is a really good opportunity, both as podcasters and listeners, uh, uh, just, just get out there and share the craft and, and share your story uh, about why you started a podcast, why you listen to podcasts. It's just honestly, Mark, it, ge- it gives us a reason to talk more about it, but talk about it more in an open forum. And if and if we need a day to do that, that's what we've done here.
0: So, what can people look forward to for International Podcast Day this year?
1: Yeah, it's going to be great. We we have some really cool events um, or, or sessions lined up. If you head over to internationalpodcastday.com. dot just click on either the schedule or the speaker tab, and you're going to find speakers, like I said, from, from all over, all over the globe, like Heather Welch, which is out of New Zealand. She does a show called uh, Sun Power Pod. And she does this international events where she connects podcasters from around the globe and she's going to be sharing her story about what she does. And it's called shining bright and bringing people together from around the world by celebrating connections. And so she's going to be sharing about like rediscovery, reconnecting with things that you're passionate about and, and how that plays into her mantra for podcasting and, um, and everywhere from, um, you know, there, there's a, a lady by the name of Jules Hannaford that's out of China, and she's going to be talking about and sharing her experiences of growing up in a Chinese family. And she's going to have a couple guests that are going to be going in there. Um, for, for you podcasters out there, you know, there's, there's a great um, session called Let's Have Brunch Using Live Events as a Podcast Growth Strategy. Uh, that's by Eileen Smith here in the United States. Some really cool uh, tips and tutorials that she's going to give us. Um, I don't want to go into all the details, Mark, but uh, International Podcast Aid dot com slash schedule is a really good starting point for you to just kind of look and see what we're highlighting this year. And just like how you produce your podcast and I produce my podcast, we give our speakers complete freedom to share and talk about their message, their expertise. And so you're gonna get some really interesting thoughts and opinions and great tips from everybody. And if, if you're not a podcaster, it's also cool as a listener to go out there and just hear what's going on in the space. And even perhaps you know, you get exposed to a new podcast or a podcaster that you may find of interest. So really cool, definitely encourage everybody to go over to the website. But a lot, a lot of exciting things going on this year.
0: Now we're going to go to a short break in a moment But before we do that We have to congratulate honorary crew members Alexander Milas and Professor Mark McCorcran And the entire team behind the absolutely amazing Space Rocks event For winning the Event of the Year Award At the Progressive Music Awards 2018 Here's the moment that they accepted their gong
2: Drum roll, please
0: space rock yeah.
2: overwhelmed that this is Hampton. i speaking for, for, for James and Alex back here. A couple of years ago, Jerry Ewing invited me to come here from the European Space Agency to present the Band of the Year Award to Big, Big Train, who I have to say were also in the nominations tonight. Sorry, guys. Um, and you know, it was an amazing experience, it's something we're really keen on linking art, science, music, space, what we do, and at that point we said, we're going to do this, we're going to actually have a gig on our own. we're going to bring in scientists, musicians, we're going to actually make this work, two years later, yes. thank you very much. thing love you to say, it's a real The space Agency we do amazing things now there we're in space, uh, but we're a very risk-averse agency, you might imagine, we put a billion euros on top of the satellite, we made sure it wasn't blow up. Uh, <laughs> this was a real risk for us, and I thank
0: We were honoured to cover Space Rocks at the Indigo at the O2 in London earlier this year. It was something that I and uh, Alan Taylor-Shearer will never forget. We're going to be bringing you part one of our coverage of Space Rocks during our fifth anniversary stroke World Space Week celebrations next month, along with a special Q&A session with astronomy author Richard J. Bartlett. So watch this space. Now... I sent you some bits and pieces about Space Rocks. What did you make of, of that?
1: It was interesting. I, I got to tell you, Mark, it was something that I was newly exposed to and I got to hear, um, obviously, the clip uh, that's been played and a really cool dynamic that's going on there, right? Those that are both within the, the musical space but also also the space industry and are really interested in, in sort of bringing that uh, marriage together. I, I thought it was fascinating. I know you shared some thoughts uh, pre-show about it. it w- what a cool event to go to, right? And something cool that we can look forward to in the future
0: yeah and and i think it's becoming a thing now across the world that science is becoming cool
1: it is i think having you know festivals like this whether it's one day or up to four days and in science Is becoming sort of cool it's coming back into uh, sort of the conversation right because we we did go through a lull here within the United States I will say you know once we canceled the the space shuttle program you know it kind of died off for a little bit and then you have the resurgence of different private corporations coming in with federal funding that are making science interesting that are making it cool doing live streams hosting these festivals and providing updates you know via social media and stuff and And its exciting time and I think because of that excitement that's going on it's turning into some excitement for those that are that have been science nerds for a while or those that are like you know what is this maybe I want to get into it but you know science to me it it seems like it's becoming a little bit more accessible right it was always a a number of projects were on either highly sensitive or confidential we never really knew until you know there's some federal report or we heard about it on some news conference now there's almost like an open-ended ticket you know to experience what it's like and I, I think right science is becoming quote-unquote cool again because you know the advent of social media and these festivals and and people are realizing that these organizers are realizing people are out there they want to take part in what's happening they want to be sort of that cheerleader that advocate for space and that's why it continues to grow year after year
0: so as i mentioned we're going to have a short break and then we're going to come back with some space news that has attracted our attention recently (laughs)
2: <laughs> Good morning. It's T minus 45 minutes until the final countdown commences. In less than one hour, if all goes according to plan, the three members of the Apollo 11 crew will blast off. in their
0: My father's name was Edwin
4: Eugene Aldrin. has
2: dreamt of mankind's
4: greatest adventure. I became Buzz. Destination, the moon.
0: He looked back at the Earth and watched it get smaller. Oh, it was beautiful.
1: Apollo 11, this is Houston. I've got the morning news here, if you're interested. Over. Go ahead, Houston. Uh, An Irishman has won the World Porridge Eating Championship by consuming 23 bowls of instant oatmeal. I'd like to enter
2: Aldrin in the oatmeal eating contest next time. He's on his 19th (laughs) bowl. Roger.
0: Human nature and curiosity is to explore the world around us, and the world around us includes way beyond. Don't you in your go for landing, over. I thing. don't do Go for landing. Roger, twelve oh two. We copy. We go same height. We go.
4: Okay, engine stop. We copy you down,
1: Eagle. Beautiful view. Magnificent desolation.
4: The next generation of
0: explorers should not ever give up.
3: Hi, I'm Matt Damon. I play astronaut Mark Watney in The Martian. In the story, my character is accidentally stranded on Mars. Sending people to Mars and returning them safely is the challenge of a generation. The whole world held its breath when the Curiosity rover landed in 2012. The boot prints of astronauts will follow those rover tracks thanks to innovations happening today. NASA's journey to Mars begins on the International Space Station, some 250 miles overhead, where we're learning how humans can thrive over long periods without gravity. Here at home, people are working across the country on the new Orion spacecraft and Space Launch System rocket that will carry astronauts farther than ever before. When we invent new technologies for exploration, it benefits all of humanity. But more than that, the journey to Mars will forever change our history books, rewriting what we know about the red planet and expanding a human presence deeper into the solar system. Follow NASA's journey to Mars at www.nasa.gov. This is TGP nominal.
0: Welcome back. Now, regular listeners to the show might remember John and I talking about the recent Copenhagen Suborbitals Nexo-2 rocket launch. For those not in the know, Copenhagen Suborbitals are a group of part-time rocketeers who build proper rockets, not models, in their spare time. They fund the launches themselves and launch from a floating launch pad in the middle of the Baltic Sea. Even though they are not professional rocketeers, their setup is very impressive and they aim to launch humans into space within the next 15 years. They have recently opened their facility to the public for a day, which doubled up as a, a debriefing for the successful NEXO-2 mission. And I contacted the guys at Copenhagen Suborbitals to find out whether they would be streaming the event. And unfortunately, they said they wasn't going to be, but they were hoping to be recording the event and they actually did so uh, they've put the, the videos of the debriefing onto YouTube and I'm going to put links into the show notes so everyone can have a look at that have you um, heard of Copenhagen Suborbitals?
1: Yeah, I have heard of them, and, and this is interesting because you know it's really the only amateur space program, as you mentioned, that's out there. They got followers, you know, all over the world. But yeah, it's it's pretty incredible to see sort of this this crowd-funded space program, right? You know, yeah. and what they I think they've flown like five or six different home-built rockets and two mock-up uh, space capsules. It's it's all volunteer, right? And it's and it's unpaid people that are building these rockets and just a cool organization to follow and, and be a part of
0: I mean I was just blown away by the the launch because okay when they had they were on the platform it was a bit a bit choppy with the streaming but when the rocket launched I mean they had three cameras on board the rocket and you did not lose the picture once <laughs> and I thought you know for an amateur setup this is pretty impressive <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the first things that you would think would go black, right? Is, you know, just, just with the pressure and the heat and, and the motion velocity, you're, you're going to have these cameras that give out and they didn't, you know, I mean, we, we've seen much larger, well-funded programs that have had video feeds fall out, you know, in and out, uh, throughout, throughout some, some stream. And it's in, incredible that they're doing such world-class rocket building, mm-hmm. um, with just I mean, quote unquote amateurs. I mean, I, we, we know they're professionals. We know, you know, what, what they're, what their background are but you know in the scheme of things it's it's pretty incredible for them to be demonstrating their their understanding and knowledge in in building when it comes to what they're doing here
0: oh definitely i mean what you've got to remember these guys have daytime jobs as well as doing this stuff and uh it's just phenomenal it really is
1: yeah and to, and to be one of those organizations that wants to fly humans into space within the next 15 years it's it's a complete realization right it, it's something that they can definitely put their minds and their efforts and and their and their finances behind so something to follow and something to do something that builds a little bit more excitement around what they're doing
0: and these things are cropping up more and more now but they are leading the way copenhagen suborbitals are leading the way <laughs>
1: Yeah, one interesting thing that uh, that I want to bring up, Mark, is that I live here in, in Bakersfield, California, here in the United States, and I'm about I don't know, 50 to 60 minutes away from the Mojave Air and Spaceport. And your listeners will know, and, and a lot of people understand what the Mojave Air and Spaceport does. You know, it, it's been the birth of some amazing testing, some innovation. And one of the cool developments that's going on right now, and uh, this actually just hit our headlines a couple days ago here in Bakersfield, is that there's a um, Aussie rocket car developer that's actually teaming up with the Mojave Space and airport entrepreneurs out there, and they're, they're tasked with trying to beat the land speed record. They're actually wanting what's called the Aussie Invader 5R. And their tagline is, coming at you a thousand miles per hour and there's a gentleman by the name of Roscoe uh, that is a former pilot that is interested in jumping inside of a rocket car and going upwards of 1,000 miles per hour, and they plan to gain that acceleration from zero to 1,000 in about 20 seconds, which is uh, pretty incredible to me, Mark. Aussie Invader is, is based out of Perth, Australia, and they're, they're really looking to reach that quadruple digit number, and of course, they're over here in the eastern area of Kern County, and so they've met with, you know, local entrepreneurs from the founders of Orbital Systems, which is which is a massive company here. And so they're designing this American-designed rocket power. Uh, it's about 51 feet, um, you know, in length, and uh, they they think that they're going to break the the world speed land record. And it's cool. And I wanted to bring this up is because it's a combination of working with those that are within the aerospace industry and working in that innovation and and finding a home and a place to build this and develop this, you know, from Australia. It's, it's weird that it's happening almost in my backyard, but that's one of the cool parts of, of being part of this is that we're gonna have, you know, uh, front end reporting On a variety of things like this you know so so the gentleman by name of uh, his first name is Roscoe he's a former drag racer and he spent uh, the past few decades his highest recorded speed was 638 miles an hour but I I guess mark 638 miles an hour just wasn't quite fast enough to satisfy him (laughs) so he's jumping into uh, this thousand mile an hour uh, you know land rocket
0: here in the UK we've got a, a history of land speed cars And uh, we had a a land speed record car called Thrust. It managed to get to 700 miles an hour, I believe. And um, we are also trying to get to that uh, that key speed of 1,000 miles an hour. with uh, a car that we've got called the Bloodhound SSC, which I believe probably means supersonic car. And now uh, this is going to be powered by a Eurofighter engine, and uh, it looks like it's going to be making its first record attempt next year, despite some major setbacks in funding. So basically what they're going to do, they've, they've built the car, they're going to ship it over to South Africa's North Cape Desert in May next year, and they're going to keep it there. They're not going to ship it back because that's where it's going to cost money is all the shipping. So when it makes its first desert run, it's going to reach 500 miles an hour for its first test run. Between 400 and 500 miles an hour, the car's progress is no longer dictated by its contact with the ground, but by its aerodynamics, making the car less stable than normal. At that point, you could take off. (laughs) It's not great. They've already tested it at uh, Newquay Airport down in Cornwall. Andy Green, he's a wing commander for the Royal Air Force, and uh, he got behind the wheel of the car for the first time at 200 miles an hour just to see if it actually worked so it'll be interesting to see how these two different cars actually compare
1: yeah it'll, it'll definitely be interesting uh you know a lot of those details you gave um just just aren't available yet for it, at least the reporting that i had seen you know but i I'm, we're also probably about a year and a half out from from seeing the um the aussie invader hit the road it's both parties agree that probably 2020 is the goal uh to win get on there that's going to make the individual that's driving about 70 years old i don't know about you mark but sitting at 70 years Old. i'm not probably really thrilled about going a thousand miles an hour but he's definitely wired a lot differently than me but it's essentially in my backyard it's something i want to be able to follow and look forward to and um yeah 2020 is not that far off not really. but to see the partnership between you know the american engineers and, and the australians it's it's cool to see you don't hear too much about that but uh, when when they reached out to the the gentleman in her overall systems, they they were honored, they were pleased, and they said, "All right, let's let's move forward, let's see what we have to do," and just that partnership is great to see, and it sort of rounds out that concept that you know it's it's no longer you know just the United States or just the UK or just Australia developing you know new technologies. It's more of a global approach of what sort of knowledge and interest in in understanding and expertise can you lend to to what we have to offer too so um it's it's more of a a global dynamic now
0: and that's what i love about it anything to do with the tech side of things the space side of things it's not a case of a country did something it's we did this you know as a human race we did this right that is just fantastic Now, we've got a a Scottish aerospace company that has unveiled plans to launch the UK's first asteroid mining mission. The Asteroid Mining Corporation, or the AMC, I really do hate acronyms. Um, I love it when they come up with a mission name or something that has got a name which is not made as an acronym because you know somebody is sitting there just trying to piece these letters together to see what they could come up with. Um... Now this company are seeking to build a a £2.3 million satellite capable of identifying platinum group metals deposited on near-Earth asteroids. It hopes to launch the asteroid prospecting satellite in 2020. There's a lot of stuff going on in 2020. The uh, APS-1, or the Asteroid Prospecting Satellite 1, will be used to conduct a spectral scan of the asteroids to determine whether they are viable candidates for mining. The company, which was founded in 2016 by a guy called Mitch Hunter Scullion, was launched by a crowdfunding campaign to help fund the project. Mr. Hunter Scullion's company has calculated that a single metallic asteroid of 25 meters in diameter contains about 29 tons of platinum worth 725 million pounds. He said our goal is to develop the groundbreaking technology that will eventually enable the extraction of processing and the use of materials derived from many millions of asteroids known to exist in near Earth. Our satellite will be the first step in achieving this success, it is quite amazing that there are not that many mining operations that are trying to take place and he found that there wasn't any in the UK at all he is basically straight out of university this guy he, um, he completed a dissertation on asteroid mining at the Liverpool Hope University he said whilst I was re- revising for it I realised that there were few companies that have been set up in the UK and it was a topic that fascinated me and when I finished at university I decided to set up the company and and begin working on developing technology that will open up possibilities for an off-earth commercial market that is just unreal that someone straight out of university has gone right i've got an idea
1: yeah i'm shattering your thoughts right here mark and it's it's absolutely incredible for him to realize that you know there's nothing being done within within the uk boundaries and let's be honest i mean mining is it's relatively new right and within the space industry there's not many corporations only a handful of players out there that are really diving into this and for someone at his young age it kind of goes back to our conversation we had about you know covering these steam and STEM symposiums, you just never know who's out there that has this this grand idea. Of asteroid mining and Mark, I got to be honest, it's one of those that you don't hear very often. You don't hear somebody go, you know what, I'm I'm really interested in in space mining and asteroid mining. It, it kind of scratches your head a little bit because the thought of mining in space is so foreign, so abject to a lot of us, right? Yeah. Um. But but when you when you identify, as he said, that there's you know what, 725 million pounds worth of platinum, you know that that's uh that's floating around. It's it's a sizable investment that you, that you want to consider oh, and yeah. yeah there's there's not too many people in the world, you know, like he said, asteroid mining corporation, uh, working with a lot of academic partners is looking to sort of tap into this billion slash trillion dollar industry. And he could be the one that really, you know, propels this industry into, to a very large, whether, whether it's profit or, or investments. Um, also I'm always curious about, you know, sort of the, the educational fallout from this stuff. You know, what are we going to learn from the mining process and what are you going to be learning from, from the elements and materials that they're bringing back? So, uh, a really cool development, I think, within the space industry. There is
0: a negative side of it as well, which is... Well, if we we keep getting this stuff from space, is it going to start devaluing precious metals? I don't know. <laughs> Nobody does. So <laughs> there's there's only one way to find out. To be honest with you,
1: there's there's always many layers to a lot of these these industries, and, and there's there's uh, there there's opportunity, there's fallout, there's you know there's always going to be some sort of dissension, and you know it, it's something we don't really consider, you know, like the regulation of asteroid mining, you know, but the government of Luxembourg in 2006 you know they they established some domestic laws and regulations how to facilitate this mining and those are things that I wasn't aware of. It's it's something that probably most people in the space industry aren't aware of. But as you know, the development of this mining industry occurs. You know, you, you're going to have to see those. And yeah, you may have fallout as far as the devaluation of materials here on Earth. And you know, it, it also raises that question mark of should we really be doing this? You know, it's it's should we be up there doing this asteroid mining? Are they better left untouched? You know, uh, for whatever reasons. But uh, you know, I, I think there's a case on on both sides for it
0: you've got the other side of it as well where by mining these asteroids they're getting smaller and therefore less harmful to earth
1: yeah yeah.
0: So there, there are as as we say here, swings and roundabouts for, for every equation, really.
1: No, that's yeah, that's really interesting. It it would be great to follow this story and see where this this young Mitch gentleman is going. And you know, he's seeking investment for his new mining project. So we'll see what sort of you know multi million, multi billion dollar you know founder or or venture capitalist is out there that's wanting to uh, piggyback off of his his concept and his idea.
0: I mean, you look at the people that have gone into these bitcoins and things like that, which people didn't think that was going to take off, and that did take off quite dramatically. So, yeah, it has. So, people are looking at things to invest in rather than trying to go through banking and stuff because the interest rates are just not there. (laughs)
1: <laughs> there's always someone that wants to, to place their bets and their money in someone's pocket and someone's venture, and you, you, you see it with with any industry. As you mentioned, Bitcoin. You can talk about virtual reality, augmented reality. All all these things. There's there's someone out there that believes this is the next step, and they're willing to put their finances on the line to demonstrate that. <laughs> Well, Mark, I wanted to jump over to Stratolaunch, and if you guys haven't seen Stratolaunch, I'm, I'm sure many of you have, but if you haven't, this is also a really cool development that's going on at the Mojave Air and Spaceport. Head over to Stratolaunch.com, and this is one of the most unique aircraft that's out there right now. One of the first unique things, Mark, I see when I get to the website, most websites you stop at the, you start at the top and you scroll down, right? this website is built upside down where you start at the bottom and you scroll up, simulating you know, sort of the travel from ground into space. And that was one of the cool little caveats that I found when I visited this website. But really what Strata Launch is, is it's a Paul G. Allen company and they're really wanting to solve some of the bigger problems and solving those bigger problems requires us getting a bigger picture of what's going on. And so they're really working with a lot of new innovators and entrepreneurs over there in the Mojave area. And they're looking at being able to launch satellites and a a variety of payloads out to the International Space Station, the difference is is that they actually take off from the ground Mm -hmm. as... A, as a plane, it, it's, it's essentially the world's largest plane. It has a, a wingspan of 385 feet. The length is 238 feet. Um, the tail height is about 50 feet. And, you know, I can go on and on with some of the dimensions, but it has six Boeing 747 engines that allow for a payload capacity of over uh, 500,000 pounds, half a million pounds. And th- there's this reinforced center wing that is essentially provides like lift and stability. It can support for those multiple launch vehicles um, with those capacities over uh, half a million pounds. And Mark, I, I sent you a picture via email about this because I had a co-worker who happened to be driving by the Mojave Air and Spaceport while they're doing some testing on the runway. And he sent me the picture right away. And I was like, this is impressive, right? It's the largest wingspan of any plane ever assembled. It stretches longer than, than most American football fields, including the end zones. And it's built by an aerospace company called Scaled Composites. And uh, it's pretty impressive. Just the unique part of it, and the reason I wanted to bring it up, is that it launches from the Ground and it reached orbit, and then they let their payloads go. And then it just comes and does a routine landing on the airstrip. Pretty impressive.
0: It is a beast of a plane. The, the way it works is going to be very similar to how Virgin Galactic actually launched. You know, Virgin planned to do, obviously, commercial flights for paying customers, but they also plan to launch other things uh, as a payload as well, uh, which is exactly what uh, Strat Launch is going to do, but on a much bigger
1: scale. A huge scale. I mean, check out the website. This thing was... Absolutely incredible. And when he sent me a picture of it, I was like, that is bigger than I could imagine, right? It's it's unique, right? It takes off and lands from a runway, but it reaches the cruising altitude of about 35,000 feet and then releases and allows for the deployment of, of these satellites at different inclinations. And it ascends into orbit and it just heads right back to the runway. And it can just reload for its next mission. There's not a whole lot more than that that goes on to it. And so it's it's this sort of concept that you can continually run this aircraft up into orbit. And it can just send materials and send supplies and satellites uh, day after day, month after month. Pretty incredible. Yeah, an absolute beast of a plane.
0: The photograph that you sent me, I mean, the distance that the photograph was taken from the actual craft, and you can still see... How big this thing is from that distance, it's uh, it's amazing.
1: Yeah, I was I was blown away when I saw it, and I had heard about it, and there had been you know talks about okay, it's being tested this and that. We had a few news reporters that were out there; they were able to capture some things, but but to see it even from a distance, it's completely massive, mm. and it's something unlike we've ever seen. But the website is great; they got a, a a variety of launch vehicles that are in development. There's one called the Pegasus. There's one called the Medium Launch Vehicle. And there's a space plane that they're looking at. It's like a fully reusable space plane that enables advanced in-orbit capabilities and cargo return. Some really cool things going on. Some great innovation going on with private industry and sort of this space 2.0 kind of thing that's happening
0: there are rumors that the sierra nevada corporation's dream chaser might also be launched from underneath it
1: yeah i had not heard about that yet
0: but uh, it is a possibility i mean it it would save them actually building (laughs) a space plane because there's already one being tested (laughs) exactly and this is another thing with the different corporations taking part there's other companies that can work with each other
1: yeah there's there's a lot of a lot of innovation a lot of design that's running parallel with a lot of these corporations right whether it's you know strata launch whether it's sierra nevada corp um you know reusable body uh space planes and you know in the like so yeah as you mentioned do they start working together is there some sort of collaboration in the future obviously they're their investors want to see something unique and different, but at the same time, a lot of these are doing the same thing. They're launching satellites. They're resupplying the International Space Station. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're running along these parallel paths. And at what point do you know either these corporations merge or what? Who stands out from what? And I think that's some of the interesting, you know, competition slash innovation that's going on right now.
0: Because I, I think personally, when it comes to rocket launches, the way forward is is having something that's pretty universal, so that you can have one kind of rocket that can fit whoever's capsule on the top or the other way around every capsule could fit onto any one formulation of, di- of different rockets so if there was a problem for example with SpaceX they could then put a Dragon onto a ULA rocket or something it, it probably wouldn't happen but I mean that would be the way forward I would think for the future is universal Rocketry.
1: That's an interesting concept. It's not something I thought of, and you know, it's it's scale up way back here and and just thinking like how we use our cell phones, right? Every cell phone has a different, you know, power supply or different plug on how to charge your phone, Mm -hmm. you know, and everybody wants something universal, right? It's something that no matter which phone you buy, you don't need the accessories, you don't need this and that. I mean, that's small scale, but think big scale like you're talking about with, you know, sort of this interchangeability, you know, of of rockets and in different pieces of, uh, of, of equipment. That's something to think about in the future. You know, I know... You know everybody's engineers and innovators are going to think differently about that but at what point are we getting to that where that is something to consider as far as some sort of universal application for rocket design
0: i only think it could help take things to the next level personally but um, i know there's probably people out there right now shouting at their speakers saying don't be stupid <laughs> but uh yeah if you've got an opinion on that let us know let us know
3: the voyages of TGP Nominal and its infinite mission to explore space, science, and technology news, to explore the world of sci-fi, comic comics and gaming, to boldly go where no podcast has
4: gone before.
0: Back in July, we reported about a British satellite built by the Surrey Space Centre at the University of Surrey, which we actually dubbed the Gladiator, for reasons that will be obvious in a moment, that was designed to test out ways to clean up debris in space. The removed debris satellite launched to the uh, International Space Station in April on board a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. Then in June, the satellite was loaded into the nanoracks of the Caber Micro Satellite. Like Deployer and deployed into space. it's remained in orbit ever since then. On the 16th of September the vehicle successfully ensnared a simulated piece of space junk in orbit by using a big net a simple idea like a net may be an effective way to clean up all the material orbiting the earth. The idea behind the net is relatively simple, capture a piece of material and then drag it down to the earth's atmosphere where it will burn up to see if this uh, idea could work, remove debris was equipped with a small satellite known as a CubeSat, which it deployed on the 16th. The tiny satellite drifted outward and then inflated a balloon to increase its overall size in order to represent a larger, more realistic piece of space debris. Once the CubeSat was more than 20 feet away, the removed debris vehicle then shot out its net. Masses at the end of the net wrapped around the target to make sure it didn't break free from the snare. The netted CubeSat should fall to Earth within a month or two, but before this happens, the vehicle will first try out its onboard harpoon. Soon, the removed debris will deploy a flat target that will extend outwards from the spacecraft. Quickly after it, It will fire its harpoon and attempt to strike the target. The test is meant to demonstrate another way of capturing the spacecraft. You can tell from that why we called it the gladiator, the net and the harpoon. It's kind of net and trident that the, <laughs> the gladiators would have used back in the day. That's a
1: perfect nickname for it. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad we're talking about this is because this, this struck me as something, as you talked about, you talked about it in July on your podcast. Steve and I talked about it on our show as well is, you know, for 50 years, we've been traveling into space and there's been no sort of method or even rules around what do you do with the space junk? We know how harmful it can be. I mean, after 50 years, I, I want to say I read that there's like 400,000 pieces of space junk floating around that could cause issues for those that are on the International Space Station, those that are traveling through space, um, you know, traveling at high velocities, very potential for danger to those that are traveling. You know, but it's cool that we've seen about these nets. We You mentioned the harpoons. We've seen things about, you know, a slingshot. They've talked about solar sails. There's been so many different concepts out there, and we're finally seeing the fruits of everybody's labor there when it comes into how do we clean up this material? How do we do it safely? And, you know, what, what is sort of the responsibility moving forward with those that are, you know, making these space travel decisions? I think it's really cool everything you shared. And it's really cool to see it in effect and it being useful, but having to wait to see sort of the, the end result of of all this innovation and all this this movement behind cleaning up space. Pretty impressive what Remove Debris has been doing.
0: There's actually a gif or a gif, however you want to pronounce it, of the net being deployed. So I'm going to actually include that in the show notes because it's fascinating to see. On the same notes, if you stick in Google stuff in space, there is a website you can go to and it is very scary to see just the amount of stuff that is orbiting around around the earth whether it be live satellites dead satellites whatever it's all been registered on this website and it's kind of like a 3D map with this stuff floating around and it's really scary to see (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh yeah I've, I've been on that website a couple times and and when people really say is is there a lot of junk in space you're like absolutely there it is shoot them that website and just show them you know kind of how fearful I would be you know if, if I'm hanging out in the international Space Station I think what back in 2016 something actually struck the International Space Station which sort of spawned this this movement towards how do we clean it up but you're right mark it's it's frightening it's scary it's one of those things that something has to be done but where does that responsibility fall what is the safest way to do so and what is the smartest way of doing so and at least with this uh this technology with this net that's out there that that gives us a little precursor into what we're going to see into the future
0: and what amazes me is the idea behind it the concept of it
1: is very basic some of the most basic concepts that we would use to capture things here on earth are also things that we can use up in space you know I, i know like 3d printing has been something that we use you know pretty pretty heavily here domestically and now we've seen you know the printing of parts and, you know, replacements components for different things that are being 3D printed in space. And that's just a, a very basic concept that can be used to ensure some sort of safety or repair job. Sometimes the basic approach is the smartest approach and also uh, the most efficient and also the most cost effective at the same time.
0: I, I don't know if you've spoken about it on your show, but we've mentioned it in the past about the developing a satellite that can actually 3D print panels and things for other satellites so that it can actually remotely repair other satellites in space.
1: We have not talked about that and that is a great concept. Yeah, satellite 3D printing that, that's interesting. I'll, I'll have to look into that. I know Steve and I, that gives us something else we can talk about. It's a really good application and you know if used properly and used in conjunction you know, printing of space parts within a satellite to repair other satellites, that's a, that's a genius move.
0: When I talk to people and, and they're trying to raise the argument why do we need to do things in space when I actually showed them the sort of things that are actually done in space it completely blows their mind because when you're talking about things like medical research and things like that Obviously, certain things you can research here, but in space, things accelerate. Things can be speeded up a lot more to get things to react a lot quicker, so you can get the research done at a quicker rate.
1: There's so many layers, just different things that you that you often don't think about because, again, we're sort of in our own little bubble, and you know, sometimes don't think outside the box per se, you know, or think outside of the planet if you want to use that <laughs> use that terminology. It's uh, yeah, so much to consider, and that's why you know I'm I've been a, a space fanatic since the days when I used to sit, my dad was in the Air Force, Edwards Air Force Base here in California. We used to sit on top of our roof and watch the space shuttle land in the morning. So since that time, I've been just a, a, a space nut. I've enjoyed it, I've loved to follow it. And so I've always had sort of that mind to what's going on. Um, but when you talk about space and you talk about, you know, the space junk and, you know, what's going on with, you know, strata launch and everything that you've mentioned on this podcast, you know, when you share that with people and they're like, really, all that stuff is going on just behind the scenes that we're not knowing about. It's like, yeah, it's it's, it's an intriguing industry to follow. Always something new to learn. Always something fun to talk about. <laughs> Well, on our last podcast, Mark, we talked about SpaceX and the announcement that they were going to be sending the very first private passenger into space and, and and travel around the moon.
4: It has been 50 years since Apollo 8 achieved lunar orbit in 1968. The time has come for civilians to fly to the moon. In 2023, SpaceX will launch the world's first private lunar mission with its spacecraft, BFR. The first passenger will be Japanese entrepreneur Yusaku Maezawa, a globally renowned art collector who believes art has the power to promote world peace. Maezawa made a bold decision. musician, film director, fashion designer, Maezawa will invite artists that represent Earth on his journey to the moon. The distance to the moon is 240,000 miles. will certainly become a legacy for humankind an awe-inspiring global universal art project is about to begin dear
1: moon to be honest with you mark i thought it was going to happen a lot sooner but looking at the time frame looking at what spacex has to do with their big falcon rocket that makes sense but this individual is actually going to be traveling with i think maybe five or six different photographers and a crew to sort of, you know, highlight and, and capture the visit, it's going to be around six to seven days. And this is actually going to be, you know, one of the first times since what, like since 1972 was the last time someone has gone to the moon since the Apollo missions happened. 24 of them made the trip. Of course, none of them were private citizens. What I wanted to talk about here, Mark, is that, you know, what we've seen with SpaceX and Elon Musk is a lot of the things that Elon Musk has come out and said as the CEO, he's announced and said, this is what we are going to do has actually happened Mm -hmm. you know it's it's not empty promises it's something where he said we are going to do x y and z as a company and we have seen them do it everything they have mentioned has come full circle it's come to to fruition and that's the impressive part i was like yes you're going to send somebody to the moon at some point but is that really going to happen and it, he has fulfilled his promise you know to to those that are the his, his investors he's fulfilled his promise to the followers of spacex and of course this is as he said this is dangerous this is not a walk in the park you know there are chances for a lot of things to go wrong we've seen a lot of things go wrong as we mentioned with virgin galactic we've seen things go wrong with spacex and we're going to see things go wrong in the future as they do the big falcon rocket but it's impressive to know that things that he has promised have come full circle and are actually happening now.
0: As we always like to say on this show, um, well, we don't like to say it because it's not a nice thing to say, space is hard. There's no other way of looking at it. It's not easy. True. As you say, with, with Elon Musk, he's got a lot of ideas. And when he started out, everyone, NASA, everybody just laughed at him and said, yeah. That isn't going to happen. And within the space of ten years, he just turned that around completely. Uh, he's an amazing guy.
1: Yeah, absolutely amazing. His mind, and not not only him, but but we got to give credit, of course, to the people that he's surrounded himself right with, with his executive staff, to his engineering, to his 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 connection with a variety of different technological companies mm-hmm. uh, innovators within the space industry and he's brought the people around him to make him successful right yeah. and i think that's that's a good sign of anybody you know he alone of course is not sending this this individual in this space it's it's a company it's it's as you mentioned it's the human race that's creating this lasting memory and what a memory for for the individual if i had a couple million dollars and i had you know 6 years to plan it Lord, I know just like you, Mark, I I would love to go up into space and just to experience that into to to sit in the Marvel and sit and just see Earth from a different perspective. I mean, I would gladly sign up for that. And and I know everybody listening would. But it's pretty impressive that we're going to see this and it's going to happen in our lifetime. I know Steve, my father and co-host, he's been there since day one you know for those that have been seeing it from day 1 it's like there's no way that's going to happen boom it's happened there's no way this next step's going to happen yeah. it's happened and that's the overall you know umbrella that I wanted to mention here is just we're we're seeing these things come into our lifetime with things like, I don't want to wait till 2023 to see it, but I understand why it needs to take that long. So it'll be interesting to see what sort of adventure and what sort of capturings um, the, the Japanese individual and his crew actually capture and bring back to us.
0: The fun part of that is he wants to bring artists and um, people involved in that side of things, which is where it changes from STEM to STEAM. I originally thought, why do you want to bring art into this kind of thing? And somebody actually said to me, you think about anybody involved in that industry. You've got designers to design rockets and stuff. That is technical drawing. And that is part of the art side of things. Photographers, you need to be able to document what's going on. And obviously the artists themselves coming up with ideas that are inspired by what's around them when they're actually in space and Tim Gagnon he is an artist and he actually creates a lot of the mission patches for NASA and he's trying to get it to go viral so that maybe SpaceX will take note on this that maybe they should call the capsule and name it after Alan Bean because of the fact that he is or was an artist, a space artist as well as being uh, a former astronaut and it would be a nice touch to actually name the capsule after him because of his connection with art
1: I, I think that that'd be really cool to tie, as you mentioned, the the movement from STEM to STEAM. Because you're right, when you're talking about designers, you're talking about visual artists, you're talking about photographers, you're talking about you know the individuals that are doing you know the the graphic renderings of what exactly happened. It's it all spawns from sort of some sort of creative space, right? Some sort of artistic vision mm-hmm. of where either you know where where this rocket is going or whether this small piece that that you're working on it, you know, in, in in your lab it whether at school or at home or, or at work, it, it all stems from sort of the creative mind. And that's why artisanal approaches and photography and, and creativity, it's it, it starts at that root, it's that base it was i think an underrepresented component when it comes to to the stem field for a long time well
0: you've only got to go back to the russian space program you've probably heard of Alexei leonov who was the 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 first man to do a spacewalk he actually had some paper and a set of coloring pencils with him when he was up there and he actually drew what he saw it was quite basic the way they did things obviously you're thinking to yourself well how was he going to do that pencils are going to float around all over the place actually had the pencils tied to his wrist with a piece of string. It's just really
1: basic stuff. Yeah, yeah, again, it goes back to your your basic concept, and you're right. These renderings and these drawings, I mean, there's a lot of history behind capturing space with an artistic you know slant to it and you know seeing what Alexia has done and seeing what Alan beam have done in the past and yeah it, it makes sense to sort of create this travel to space not only for for your memory and some sort of you know mission finding but also you know wh- what are we gonna do how are we going to learn and what are the memories we're going to take away from that pictorial representation of that travel and that's going to be exciting to see
0: definitely technology and art go together hand in hand. <laughs> I've got a a story that's very close to my heart. After 12 years of what some consider undeserving discredit, scientists are now reclaiming Pluto as a planet. Pluto was downgraded in 2006 from a planet to a dwarf planet. The reason, according to the Library of Congress, it was not meeting the requirement that would have it as a sufficient mass to clear the neighbourhood around its orbit. Though Pluto meets the other um, things it needs like it orbits the sun and it's round. The International Astronomical Union or the IAU downgraded the celestial body for being unable to become gravitationally dominant in its orbit, therefore making our nine-planet solar system to an eight-planet one. But a new study published in the scientific journal Icarus disputes this claim. That research argues that the definition of a planet has shifted through time and that the geophysical differences between asteroids and planets should be accounted for and not voting as the basis for determining a planet's status. The new study argues that 200 years of reviewed scientific literature didn't indicate that clearing orbit is not an agreed-upon standard for what isn't a planet. The IAU definition would say that the fundamental object of planetary science The planet is supposed to be defined on the basis of a concept that nobody uses in their research, said Philip Metzger, a planetary scientist who led the study. He said in a UCF statement that it would leave out the second most complex, interesting planet in our solar system. Now we have a list of over a 100 recent examples of planetary scientists using the word planet in a way that violates the IAU definition. But they are doing it because it's functionally useful to use the word planet. It's a sloppy definition, he said, that removed Pluto's planetary title. They didn't say what they meant by clearing their orbit. If you take that literally, there are no planets because no planet clears its orbit. It is a bad thing because it has more complex geology than Mars, for example, and the only other planet that has a more complex geology is Earth.
1: It's interesting you brought this up because I actually forgot that it's been 12 years that mm-hmm. this argument has been going on. It always seems like something that just happened, you know, two or three years ago. But when it was declassified as a planet back what in 2006, and to know that this debate has rumbled on and rumbled on for over a decade, you know, some things in science you you expect to be sort of clear-cut. There's an argument, as we said, on both sides. But you know, when you look at over you know 200 years of scientific literature and you look at all of the qualities and Qualifications for being a planet, and there's still individuals on both sides of the spectrum that can't agree on what we should define Pluto as. You know, you, you mentioned you know some of the complexities that make Pluto, at least within our rationale, to, to be classified as such. And you know, it, it's a debate that continues to linger on. And it, it seems like the two that wrote the paper in 2006 were sort of essentially unfazed. You know, weren't completely obviously in agreement with with this new study. Pluto deserves our attention, right? It would leave out the second most complex and definitely interesting planet in our solar system. Definitely. Dr.
0: Alan Stern is always coming up with new findings to actually prove a point. And there's more findings than not of Pluto being a planet. I know there's going to be a lot of people again saying, no, it is not. But since the launch of New Horizons and, and the things that we've actually found out about Pluto, there's no way it can't be classed as a planet there's it's too much interesting stuff happening on that, that little planet to say otherwise, it's not just a rock, and um, the other argument is that if Pluto becomes a planet then so should all these other ones that are out there, and we can't have all those as planets, why? Why can't we have all those as planets?
1: No, you're right. I think Pluto, it's it's too big, it's too dynamic, it's too complex to ignore, and I, I don't know where the mentality comes. Is okay, we have to have a limitation on our definition of planets, right? And, you know, if we can have 8, why can't we have 10? If we can have 9, why can't we have 12? Right? And I, I don't think that's, that's a bad debate to have, right? Because I don't, I don't think there's limitations and then there's limitations that should be scaled back, and uh, that conversation can be had. But to your point, with New Horizons, what we've captured with that six-month-long reconnaissance that studied Pluto uh, in the summer of 2015. And it, it's, again, complex, and it's interesting enough where we, we can't ignore it. And it's I think it's good that this debate has been uh, sort of reinvigorated within the space industry.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Quite often we hear stories on TGP Nominal that inspire us and we're not just talking about the technological breakthroughs. Sometimes human stories grab you and uh, this is one of those. There's a an eight-year-old boy called Hayden Geraghty who comes from County Londonderry in Northern Ireland and he has got autism. He had very, very limited speech until the day Tim Peake launched into space in 2015. Hayden began to count down to the rocket's takeoff, and his speech has improved ever since. Hayden, who is the youngest member of the Astronomical Island Club, was a spark for a, a new range of dolls created by a company in Donegal that makes figures that are inspired by children and the new doll is called the Loyal Companion Finn now Finn is dressed in a spacesuit, which Hayden wears a lot I and mean, he's got like Tim Peake patches and all kinds of stuff on it Hayden said astronauts help me to learn more about our planet. They help me to learn how beautiful it is from space, how important it is to take care of it. One day my dream is to go into space, to the moon or to Mars. Lottie Dolls who created Finn told BBC News in Northern Ireland that the latest figure was created to emphasize that childhood should be an inclusive place where every child belongs regardless of gender, ethnic background or ability. The doll also comes with an assistance puppy with a blue bandana to signal that the dog has been trained to support a child with autism. Hayden's mother, Caroline, told the BBC it was an an incredible moment to hear him speak for the first time. His love for space has changed his life and everything about him. Through our hard work and campaigning, we were introduced to Lottie dolls and they were totally inspired by Hayden. The doll is there now for children across the world who might have autism. It also gets a message out there to children who don't have autism. Finn the doll looks like Hayden. He has the same spacesuit as Hayden and has the same headphones. It's just been really incredible experience and he is very delighted.
1: Yeah, what an incredible story. I mean, to think of, you know, Hayden is this child who is virtually nonverbal, that was diagnosed with autism, diagnosed with ADHD, and then to see that his love of space really began to open up his possibilities, you know, within within this world and what what a tribute, what an honor for little Hayden to have this companion doll that's essentially manufactured and created out of him. It's it's an amazing story and you're right. It goes beyond just the passions of space and and being curious about the explorations and everything we've talked about on the show, it's knowing that space is changing lives, that it's creating an opportunity for, for a young man who has some disabilities and has some hardships down the road to look towards space as that moment in which he sort of began living, right, and I think just seeing that interpretation of what, what's been happening with Young Hayden and the astronaut doll is definitely uh, an inspiring story within this within the industry.
0: And it's something we try and do on the podcast and our colleagues at UK Astronomy, which is a, a charity set up to go around to schools and different uh, societies and associations like scouts and uh, that kind of thing to inspire and if we can inspire just one person our job's done i think
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely it's about inspiring it's about you know it's changing someone's perspective either on life or some sort of dream that they may have and you're right. I mean, that's uh, some things are, are greater than the overall perspective that we often look at it. And hearing Hayden's story is such a blessing to hear about. This, I, you know, I didn't know anything about him un- until this, and it's uh, quite an amazing story. It is to see how this has helped him, right? To move move into childhood and eventually into adulthood. And you know, it's it's somebody who's who's going to be a follower of, of space and the industry for a number of years to come. I'll be interested to see when when he becomes more talkative and he's able to to, to have a conversation with some people to, to sort of hear his story from his own perspective. I think that'd be really amazing to be a part of.
0: And you quite often hear that people on the spectrum are very focused on certain things and they kind of excel in that chosen subject. And like we were talking earlier about the next generation, we can only hope that something really works for him.
1: Yeah, and that's all, that's all we can look for is there's there's something that he, he has focus and a passion and love for, and that's going to prove to be uh, very beneficial and and have a lot of dividends for him in the future.
0: Right, at the top of the show I mentioned a field trip that I went on recently. After this short break, all will be revealed.
2: Did you know that right now we have a spacecraft orbiting the moon? The Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has been at the moon for over seven years, providing unprecedented detail into our nearest neighbor in space. I'm Noah Petro, and for more information about the moon and the LRO mission, go to nasa.gov slash LRO, and follow us on Twitter, at LRO underscore NASA. Space, the final frontier. Final because
0: it wants to kill us. Sometimes we forget that start taking it all for granted the suits the ships the little bubbles of safety as they protect us from the void
4: but the void is always waiting
3: blast off into the podosphere with tgp nominal
0: Right so I'm here at a little place just outside Quainton in Buckinghamshire and I'm here with Mike Peel who runs a, a company called Rogue Creation Special Effects and uh, well I'm actually in his workshop at the moment. How are you doing Mike? I'm doing very well thank you. Now you might remember Mike from a couple of years back when we did a free comic book day for Dead Universe Comics. I've Always wanted to come over to to see the workshop because I know you should do some fantastic stuff in here. What exactly inspired you to get involved in this business?
2: I'd say love of film, sci-fi and horror from early age as a kid. Always loved creatures, fantastical sci-fi films, especially when I was growing up. More probably more so uh, than the horror films that came later. But yeah, to, to begin with, it, it it was very sci-fi, fantasy based. So without sounding too corny, one of my earliest memories was seeing Star Wars on TV It was normally shown every Christmas. I just being fascinated by the by the creatures especially that that kind of drew me in, but the whole sort of the elements of of the spaceships, the foreign weird planets and settings so that I think really really kind of started my love for the um, for the genre and for uh, the creature aspect of it. now we're here
0: right in the heart of your workshop and it is a it's quite an aladdin's cave i mean the stuff that you've got on the walls and uh on display in here it's, it's quite amazing i mean at the moment i'm sitting or standing here looking at uh, one of the the eggs the cocoons from uh, alien which is a bizarre looking thing up, up on a gantry and uh, i mean there's so much to look at every time i look around there's something different to see
2: it's lots of things which I've enjoyed working on, which I've enjoyed making. It's, a lot of it is, is inspirations as well from certain films that I've grown up watching and that kind of develops into creating a lot of the, the artworks of the projects that we do. It, it's based on a lot of other very talented artists' skills that have gone before, so you're, you're always honing your skills and, and referencing them as much as possible. For certain projects and
0: so you've got different areas that you you work in the workshop so we're at the an area where it's more intricate stuff that you work with I guess
2: for most areas there's uh, you normally have a, uh, a sculpting area a wet area which is for your uh, your resin or your fiberglassing. normally have a clean area for for artwork and or hair punching so for for myself, I've I've normally got one stable area, uh, which is my creative hub. So, favoured workbench just means that I can do a bit of everything, uh, all from one place. But you, you do tend to expand lots of different materials, lots of, of different tools for different things. But I, I normally end up coming back to the same space, especially for especially for artwork and or, or detail work. It's my comfort zone.
0: What I'm seeing in front of me now, I mean, you've got every kind of brush pen um there's like mini little trowels you've got um a a lot of stuff that i can see that i can remember seeing from pottery class actually that kind of stuff
2: There. i mean there's so many uh so many materials and tools that we'll we'll use for for specific things so for for sculpting over over the years you build up a, a good library of tools which you'll use Saying that there are probably you know, maybe six or seven which are my favourite, so I could I can have a, a a tub full of 30 tools. there be five which I'll pick out, which will always go to. Other tools are a bit more specific. So, for uh, example, if you're doing a, um, uh, a creature or, or a human face, there's tools for skin pores, for skin textures, wrinkles. Everything sort of has a has a purpose for itself. Other times, it could be. A, a normal household object, which you'll use for making a mark, making a uh, a tooling line, if it suits what you need it for. I mean, in the past, uh, I was doing a load of doing a load of mushrooms for a fantasy film, and just on the inside of the belly of uh, of the mushroom, you've got those lovely kind of stridation lines. Racking my brains, thinking, right, you know, what can I use? Can I sort of use this tool, that tool? I ended up using a, a fork from the kitchen drawer, <laughs> which was absolutely perfect. They were wide enough to give me the space. I didn't need to uh, to make up a tool, which sometimes we'll do. If there isn't something that we could find that's readily available, we'll have the know-how to figure out what we need and how to make that ourselves, which is great then because nine times out of ten it's a tool which nobody else has but it serves a purpose, so it it might only get used once or twice, or it then becomes a a favoured tool, which you'll use again and again, or end up altering uh, or changing.
0: It's always been that way, well, I say it's always been that way in the special effects industry, but when you cast your mind back, and talk about Star Wars again, that kind of revolutionised the idea of just developing things yourself because the technology wasn't there, so it's, you know, improvise and make something
2: yourself. Very much so. A lot of the tools which were first developed were for very different materials. Over the years, a lot of the sculpting materials that we use have advanced different uh, thicknesses, different sureness to the material, so you're then choosing which tool you, you need to use. Very much like the the industry itself is... There isn't normally a go-to shop. So if if somebody wants, a a director, producer wants something very specific for a film, then you have to be able to create that from nothing almost. Mm -hmm. Unlike, say, the building trade, there'll be numerous, hundreds of shops where you can buy the products that you need for an end result. On the effect side of it, nine times out of ten, you're being asked to create something which has never been seen before, never been created, nobody has one available or they want a, a variation on something which is pre-existing as an artist and creator you then want to vary that idea or that concept to make it your own not as a direct copy um, so we're, we're always being challenged to to think outside of the box to reimagine the box to build the box to put the box in um, so there's, there's always a, a good creative thinking process to it. Awesome. Now, um, take us around a, a little bit of the workshop and the different areas that you've got. Made main big table in the workshop, this primarily at the moment is a dumping ground, because uh, most of the projects have kind of have slowed down a little bit. But it's, it's always nice having a, a bigger workspace, knowing that you can branch out. So earlier this year, we had a, an eight foot by four foot mould, rubber mould on this table, uh, which we were making Roman tiles for our TV series. So it'll, it will vary, it's it's nice to have one big area where you know you can just space out. Certain other areas are designed for uh, either for mould making, for tooling, for machining. So try and keep those as separate as possible. Normally when it gets into the last few days of a project, that all goes out the window and it's whatever space is available. Especially if you've not had the uh, the chance or the time to tidy up as you go. <laughs> so even even in larger spaces you end up working in the smallest area possible because you can't be bothered to move everything off. (laughs) But then it's very therapeutic when that project is finished because then you have a day in the workshop to tidy everything up, put it back where it should do, get clean for the next project, and then a week or two weeks later, you're in exactly the same position of mess everywhere. But you look forward to that day when you can come in and start fresh. Yeah, normally separate out the areas, sculpting, application, uh, hair work, mold making area which or the wet area because it's working with wet materials so resin fiberglass uh, gel coats polymers foams we'll try and keep that separate from other areas because it's the messiest of the lot even being as careful as you can things are going to spill certain chemicals which you want to keep separate from uh, from other effects materials so this is kind of the the one area where mess is inherent, it's going to happen, you know it's going to happen and again even the variation from materials and and chemicals that we have on this side, to say the sculpting side, it's a collection of random objects which we know just what to do with. So for so many people, why do you need so many chemicals, what does this do, what does that do and because you've been doing it for so long you Instantly knowing your head what that chemical is, what that material will do, what the ratio is, what the mixing ratio is, how long it's going to set, how you need to clean it if there is a spillage or something uh, doesn't quite gel. So all these things you accumulate from years of, of working in the industry is it's second knowledge or it, it's you know you, you don't even think about it. It's just like all oh, right, you know that's not setting what you know what material do I need to um, to catalyse this material how much of it. Yeah. Um, yeah it's it's really second nature with with so many materials so you use pretty much most materials do you
0: for i I notice you've got things like silicon obviously glass fiber that kind of stuff the
2: the choice of material normally is it's based on an end product so certain materials will work better with with an end result say so if we are producing uh, something like a latex mask more often than not we'll end up using plaster of uh, Parish as a moulding material because those two work together. Uh, if we're doing silicon work then we'll end up with fiberglass moulds or even silicon moulds backed up with fiberglass jacket so it's very much figuring out the longevity of the mould itself, how many copies you'd have to run of say a, a particular prop or a mask or a creature head so it's it, it's taking all of that into account before you've even started working on something because you need to have an end result in your in your head in in figuring out of how to make say that that creature or that prop so i do very much tend to work backwards if i'm given a brief by say a a director or producer or client i'm already at the end uh at the end of the project figuring out how do i get to that point almost working backwards so i can visualize Even if it's a, you know, a specific fantasy or horror or sci-fi creature, if I've got a design that I'm working for, I'll realise that. The process then is figuring out how do I get to that point. Even before I've started sculpting or moulding, it's figuring out the materials that I need, the time, if it's on a uh, a certain deadline. But it, it very much is imagining the end result and then piecing together how do I get to that point step by step, which then informs me a lot better when I actually start the process because I know either how much time I've got, what materials I'm go- going to need uh, and how it's all going to fit together then for a final piece. Uh, I was approached by uh, a client to make a Death of Rats mask based on Tony Pratchett's uh, Discworld. Initially I think I was approached by the client wanting a, a wearable mask um, something obviously which is going to uh, which is going to fit over her, be comfortable. There wasn't a specific brief on this, but because I've got a little bit of time at the moment, I kind of got nicely into the sculpt itself. So from from start to finish, I think the sculpt, uh, which was based on uh, or sculpting in water-based clay, uh, was about four days in total to sculpt and. What we do then is create a mould of that sculpt so that we can then replicate that uh, in a different material. And because, obviously, it's going to be a mask, uh, it'll end up being a a silicone or a latex mask. So we've got to factor that in, even when we're sculpting it, of certain areas we've got to look at how we're going to mould it um, and also then determining where we would have the mould line itself. So with with most moulds, that would do, you'd normally end up with a two-piece mould, so a front and a back. Yeah. Um, which is, it's easier then for when we produce the mast uh, to actually get it out of the mould. It also helps us when we come to clean all the, the clay out of the mould itself. Um, so it's, it's considerations then of making it work easier for us uh, in the construction of it, the deconstruction of it. Um, so the, the mould itself, again took about a day and a half uh, with the uh, with a fiberglass mold and then cleaning up sort of trimming down sanding off edges making sure it's nice and smooth uh, and then bolting it all back together so the the finished mask probably be another two or three days so we'd, we'd pour the material let that set that would give us our skin for the mask itself we then need to just trim around the the edges of the the seam line, which is where the two moulds meet in mm-hmm. the middle, uh, and then we get onto the painting, uh, which could take sort of maybe uh, a day and a half, maybe two days. So in total, you know, you're looking at maybe seven to ten days wow. on a, on a straight run. Other projects, which which are similar size, similar you know, mass projects that I've worked on, have taken a bit longer. If you're fitting them around other projects which come in. Um, which is normally the case you'll start on one project you have a nice clean calendar and then a phone call or email will come in with somebody wanting something quicker and it's like okay I can afford a bit of time to put that on hold for a day or two work on another project uh, and then come back to, to what you're working on time-wise it can vary I've, I've had jobs which were two days I've had jobs which were two months so they, they all vary as to the uh, the timings or when they need
0: is it mostly all sort of like masks and things that you get asked to do
2: it varies from month to month in in all honesty um i mean what we've in the last year we've done masks we've done props creatures prosthetics breakaway props soft props a lot of fabrication with uh, with silicon with foam with rubber it absolutely varies from job to job so it could be armor it could be weapons and then a week or a month later it's a bunch of zombie masks needed for film so it really does vary from job to job which is the beauty of it because it's it's variation it's it's keeping creative it's being able to turn your your hand to several different processes or several different jobs but to get the end result you know the same end result high quality Props or masks, so it's it's rare of doing the same thing over and over again, even if for for, uh, for different projects. A lot of the times, it's 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 you go where where the work comes in for. I I can't say it's always that way. A few years back, I spent eight months doing props for the West End, and that was it for eight months. So no masks, no rubber work, no creatures. But then directly after that, I was doing a fancy piece or a, a fancy project for two months. And that was what, that was creature-based in uh, props and mask making and costume. So you can never tell, but if, if the work comes along, it's interesting uh, and it piques your interest. Then you know you've got the skills to to, uh, to complete it. Uh, that's that's what keeps us going. So you were talking about
0: doing props. When it comes to making props, do you have to make different versions of the same thing depending on? Say so if it was an action
2: scene or with specific props. Yes. So normally for action props, uh, you'd have the the biggest kind of biggest request is normally knives, guns, or uh, breakaway glass. So we've done quite a lot of those in the past. Knives, especially, you'd have a lot more variations because you don't obviously want to have a real knife on set with the actors, even with the stunt guys you make different variations, either a soft knife, which is flexible but holds its shape, a resin knife, which on camera looks sharp and looks nasty but isn't going to cause any damage. Even with the, the effect side of it, if you're cheating a shot, we've had knives before where we'll have a uh, three-quarter length so it can look as if it's stabbed into somebody's arm or somebody's neck without then creating, say, a whole dummy which you can then put a real knife into. Sometimes you've got to look at it the what is the easier option that is going to save a lot of time, especially if you're out on shoot or location, because time is always of the essence, and what you don't want to be doing is, is rushing around with certain set pieces. So sometimes you have to look at it and go, well, we could make this a you know, highly detailed replica dummy of the actor, and it would look great having the, fake, you know, the real knife stuck in, blood coming out. Or we can have a fake knife and cheat it, which is something... you know." very much used by Tom Savini back in the the day, back in the 70s and 80s. The real person, the fake weapon, the fake weapon, the real person. Um, And it it works to great effect. A lot of the times you can't always tell the difference. Um, But from my experience, sometimes it is working out what is the easier option doesn't always necessarily mean it has to be the cheaper option or the less complicated but it's what works on camera yeah and if it's if it's a nice quick effect most of the time everyone's happy as long as they get the shot then job done without over overthinking out without overegging it too much what's next for you there's a few little projects on the horizon uh i can't say too much at the moment um i've got i've got meetings the rest of this week which i'm sure you'll you'll hear about at some point but as very often in this industry you don't want to confirm anything or say anything until the project is greenlit. With so many projects in the past, you get excited months in advance, and it's like, yes, okay, it's going to happen, we're on the go. Then it goes dead quiet because Mm -hmm. of funding, because of interest. So unfortunately over the years, you don't announce or get excited until it's greenlit and everything is signed and dotted. And even then, with with a lot of projects in the past, You're then still waiting a year, maybe 18 months, before you can tell anyone or show anything because you've signed off uh, on a non-disclosure agreement and you're aching to show what you've got or put it up on the website because you're like, that'd be really great and I'd love to show that, but I can't. So it's a waiting process, but by the time that project comes out, I'm sure I'll be waiting for another year on something else I've just worked on. Awesome. So basically, watch this space. (laughs) Absolutely. Watch the skies. (laughs) Well, Mike, thanks for talking with us. No, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Now, it was a really interesting day spent with him. And um, one of the things that I noticed was on his workbench was, well, the best way of describing it, it was um, from the, the movie Hellraiser. There was a character called Pinhead. And what... Mike has actually managed to do is merge that character with a minion, and he's actually called it opinion which, uh...
1: <laughs> that's very clever. <laughs>
0: And uh, it's, a, it's a cute little thing. It's considering it's supposed to be coming from a horror movie. It's a cute little thing. And he's thinking about doing the same thing with some of the classic characters from horror movies, like Frankenstein's monster, combining that with a with a minion, <laughs> that kind of stuff, or Wolfman or Dracula or that kind of stuff, which would be really funny, I think. <laughs> Whilst I was there, he uh, he said to me, "Oh, come." into my office for a moment I thought don't know why but yeah okay we'll go we're we'll going to the office and it is so amazing and I'll put some pictures on the show notes about it because his office i oh I, I mentioned in there that his workshop is like an Aladdin's cave his office has got so much memorabilia from movies and sci-fi and fantasy and Basically, he said to me that the stuff that I've got in my office is the stuff that my wife won't let me have at home.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Keep it in your office.
0: So that was really cool. And as a little gift, he gave me—I um, mentioned in the clip about uh, these full size alien eggs from the, the movie that uh, he recreated. And he's actually made some of these alien eggs into fridge magnets. Interesting. And, and he's actually given me a set of these fridge magnets.
1: Nice, nice little uh, bonus little, right there for
0: memento, you. Little memento, yeah. Dot weebly.com That's Spamhead It's almost time to wrap up the show, but before we do, I'd like to thank Dave for coming on board and co-hosting with me.
1: Yeah, it was an absolute blast, Mark. Thank you so much. I hope everybody joins us for International Podcast Day. Steve and I, uh, real quickly, Mark had joked about one day, maybe we'll have Intergalactic Podcast Day, (laughs) where we could perhaps broadcast live from space, International Space Station, SpaceX, whatever. So joking aside, we hope everybody joins us over there. And of course, thank you a hundred times, Mark, for having me on the podcast again Uh, it's always a blast love you know geeking out and talking about a variety of space things so uh, thank you so much i really appreciate that
0: no problem now i know when i posted on twitter that we had our own mission patches for tgp nominal you asked how you could get hold of one of these well at the moment the only way to get one is by being inducted into our honorary crew members and as you've technically appeared on the show twice would you like to be an inductee
1: Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Wow. It's unexpected. Awesome.
0: <laughs> now, there is one condition, though. You, you'll have to send me a photograph of you proudly displaying the patch, and then I can add you to the honorary crew members' wall.
1: That will not be an issue at all. That'd be great.
0: Now, you'll be joining others like uh, Yuri's Knight founder Loretta Hidalgo Whiteside, astronaut and video game mogul Richard Garriott, and Darth Vader himself, Dave Prowse. Wow. I'd also like to thank Mike Peel for allowing me to look around Rogue Creation Special Effects. There won't be a TGP Extra for October, as Ross Hockham from UK Astronomy will be joining us for our birthday celebrations. So keep looking out for that. So that leaves us with one thing left to say. Take care, one and all.
1: Thanks for
3: listening. And we'll speak to
0: you all again real soon. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP
1: Nominal. If you want to get in touch with us, then...
3: Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com, where your input is our output.
1: Or click the social media icons at the top left of the page over at tgpnominal.weebly.com.
0: If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio.
1: And you can listen to me going solo, bringing you the latest in movies and home theatre for regular people in the Widescreen podcast over at widescreen.org. Don't forget to
0: rate and review us. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us